0: True Multifamily is an On Air Brands production and a proud member of the On Air Brands Network.
1: Hey there, True Multifamily listeners, Justin here. Want to make sure you know about our website, truemultifamily.show, where you can stay all up to date, not only on this podcast, but all of our investment opportunities and other projects we have going on. Sign up for our newsletter at truemultifamily.show. See you there. This is True Multifamily, the show where we dive in on what really happens after closing a multifamily property. We're going to expose the role of asset manager, that's a person who has the responsibility of seeing the vision, executing the plan, and managing people, budgets, and timelines, all to deliver returns for our investors. These are the real struggles, the real victories, and the real stories of asset management. Welcome back to another episode of True Multifamily, I'm your host Justin Fraser. Here with a very interesting story today. I think you guys will all be able to learn a lot from it. My guest, Mike Morowski. Mike, thanks for coming on the show today.
0: Hey Justin, I appreciate you having me. Thanks. I'm I'm
1: excited to chat with you today. Let's not waste any time. Please, let's jump right in. Tell us um how you got into real estate and and the the portfolio that you were able to build.
0: Yeah, sure. You know, I got into real estate kind of by default. I had a general contracting business that I was doing um, residential kitchen and bath remodeling, room additions, had built a pretty successful company uh, outside of Chicago. And, you know, Justin, I woke up one morning and I was just burnt out, looked at my wife. I said, I can't do this anymore. I was still banging nails and and just hated what I was doing. And so we wound up selling the company. I sold the company, took a year off. And during that year, uh, we house hacked. And this was long before house hacking was sexy, right? So yeah. We, we flipped a couple of properties, but I met a real estate agent along the way. And I've always believed success leaves clues. So that's, you know, really great evidence on these podcasts. And you do a really great job of, of bringing good talent to the table. And so, so I met this real estate agent and I went and had a conversation with him about going into the real estate business. And he said, boy, I think you'd be great at it. I said, well, listen, can I shadow you? He said, No, he goes, better than that, I'm going to make you a cassette tape. So I'm now dating myself, right? <laughs> he said, I'll make you a cassette tape. And I equated that. I equate that today to these podcasts. Mm-hmm. I listened to it over and over and over again. And I took those simple techniques, those things that he taught on that podcast, and I used them in my business. My first nine months in the business, I went out and sold 78 single family homes, all for sale by owners. Wow. A team selling 125 houses a year. And then from there in 2005, I saw the market starting to shift and soften. And I knew that if I didn't go do something different, that I wasn't going to keep up the same production that I was used to. So I decided I wanted to go in the apartment business, something I had researched, done a lot of homework on, understood the private equity model. Justin, I understood that if you raised private equity, married it with a great real estate deal, stayed in the middle. And as long as everything went well, everybody made money. It was a great win-win situation. Yep. Over the next 30 months, I raised $18 million. I bought $60 million worth of real estate. It was like 4,000 apartments in five different markets. And then I built a property management company managing 7,500 units. Wow. And as a result of that, all that experience and knowledge, today I'm in the uh, coaching and training space.
1: Great, Uh, great, great sort of growth and transition, but I I know you glossed over it. So um, you you said a result of of experience and knowledge. Why don't you dive in and tell us a little bit about some of the, the tough lessons that you learned?
0: That's it. You know, I've learned some tough lessons along the way. I think a lot of times people say how great it is and how much success they have but you know what? We all stub our toe at a certain time. And I think it comes to a point where it's not if you're going to stub your toe, but it's when you stub your toe. What do you do and how do you react? Absolutely. So 2008 came around. 2008, we hit the worst economic crisis the country's ever seen. As a result of that, part of my issues going into that timeframe were that I bought too much real estate way too fast. So I want people to take caution to this because I was over leveraged in 2007. I bought 17 deals for 2,700 units. I didn't stabilize along the way. It was like trying to balance a chair on two legs and lifting your feet off the floor. Mm -hmm. So um, I was really unbalanced. I then was over leveraged. I was 85% loan to value on those deals. And when you look at a $60 million portfolio and you're only 15% in, it's not a safe place to be. Thought the market would continue to go up, that I would have been able to build on that equity, but that's not what happened. I didn't raise enough money from investors. And then I had a silly thing put in my offering documents at the time where I wouldn't go back and ask for a capital call. So as a result of all that, when we hit a wall and people started to move out and occupancy shifted and cash flow lessened, I was left in a position where being unstable, I wasn't able to operate, pay my bills or pay my investors. So what I did was I started to move money back and forth between companies. Now, at the advice of my attorney and accountant, they said, leave paperwork, you know, leave a promissory note between companies. When the market changes back, put it back. Mm -hmm. Well, the market, as you know, took seven or eight years to correct, and we were trying to bounce back from a 40% correction. So it was a tough place to be. As a result of not telling my investors what I was doing, trying to save the company, Uh, I wound up being charged on wire fraud and mail fraud charges and sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. Wow! Now, I got wiped out, lost everything. And, you know, Justin, you would think, wow, that's that's pretty bad. That's the worst it could get because you go from living this lifestyle of, you know, upper middle class, owning these apartments, really building a portfolio, building a couple of successful businesses to all of a sudden being wiped out. Now you're in federal prison, living in a 12 by 12 room with three men you don't know in a two by five locker. So Mm -hmm. your life totally changes. Well, I'm in prison thinking that that's the worst it could get, right? Reality is it wasn't the worst it could get. I was probably gone about 17 days and my wife told me she was going to divorce me. And as a result of that, I was wiped out. I was emotionally spent, didn't know what had happened. Uh, trying to catch my breath and figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Well, you know, there's a saying in prison that says you can either do the time or let the time do you. And I chose to do the time. I was probably, I was gone about six weeks and I walked into the gym one day and, and I'm about 35 pounds overweight at the time, not feeling real good about myself and wondering what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And, and this guy walks up to me and he goes, Hey, look, don't let these people beat you. All they want to do is take everything from you and wipe you out. He goes, but what they can't take from you is your knowledge and they can't take your wisdom and they can't take what, uh, your drive to help you build a business. He goes, you can get this 10 years back, come to the gym, work out. And he was right. That was probably the best advice anybody's ever given me. Started going to the gym every day, started working out, wound up going to college, got a four-year bachelor's degree in theology. I wrote two books while I was gone. One called Exit Plan: Your Complete Guide to Multi-Family Investing and Why You Need an Exit Plan Before You Buy. And I'd love to give a copy away to your listeners too at the end. Uh, of the show. And then I wrote a book on property management called Winning Strategies, which will be out later this year. Wow! And we'll get in. I know we're going to get into that a little. Mm-hmm. But I also wrote an ethics study course. And I taught real estate, property management, and ethics for five years. I taught Bible study for five years. But What was really cool, Justin, was I was on an outreach program. I got to go into the community like 40 times, tell my story to small business owners, to the local area college students. And I met a professor from the University of Minnesota. And we co-authored a paper together, um, a case study on ethics that just got published in the Business Journal of Ethics in January. And it gets taught at the collegiate level to forensic accounting classes and sales and marketing and accounting classes. So uh, I did a lot with my time. I came home, said, you know what? I'm going to initiate a plan to build a coaching and training platform that I can help other people not make the same mistakes I made, to learn from my mistakes, and to be able to grow. So my goal is to help people scale their business, in a well-balanced lifestyle, and do it um, ethically. Wow. So much to unpack there. Thank you for sharing that story with us.
1: When someone starts syndicating, operating, taking money for deals, a lot of the education out there says, you know, hire a syndication attorney and you'll be okay. So I know you had lawyers and attorneys and documents. So can you give us some guidance on where an operator may get into a little trouble, whether it's what you did or, or other things that you've seen and give us some some tips and tricks to, to stay uh, away from that.
0: One thing I'm going to say is be true to yourself. Know what you know and believe in what you know. You can have all the best attorneys. You can have people that work for you and people around you. But if your gut tells you that what you're doing is not right, do what's right. I could, you know, a quick story. I was walking in. I had a board of advisors. Yeah, I had great attorneys. I had great paperwork. I had great documents. Even the judge in court said, hey, you know what? We're not in dispute of your documents here. Your documents were all in order. Right. It was your action that you took. So all that stuff was in place. But I had a board of directors and I had 12 men and women. 10 of which, or nine of which were from other disciplines, weren't even in the real estate business. But these people were all smarter than me. And I'm walking into a board meeting in uh, the spring of 2010, and I'm prepared to tell them everything that's going on. And what do you think we should do? And I really believe that if I would have done that in that meeting, that things might have taken a different turn. Mm-hmm. I met in the parking lot by my attorney, and this is my in-house legal counsel. This is somebody I pay a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to, who I thought had my back, who I thought had my best interest at heart. And what he said to me was, hey, don't talk about that stuff. And I'm like, why? He said, well, we don't have enough information. I said, how much more information do we need? I said, people have moved out. We can't release properties. We can't bring occupancies up. We can't pay our bills. And our investors are calling capital. He goes, yeah, but we need more information. He goes, give me two weeks to put more stuff together, and we'll do a conference call. Well, we never had that conference call, and I walked in there, my, you know, against my gut check of saying, hey, I'm going to go that, I'm going to talk about this, and I didn't talk about that stuff. And as a result of that, I think that that turn uh, caused me to go down a path that, you know, I might have been able to save myself from. Wow. So let's talk just a little bit about. What you were telling me before we came on the
1: air, where your mistake was, and what specifically we should be avoiding.
0: Yeah. So specifically, what happened was, um, you know, I I always look at it like this. Hey, was, I'm the oldest born, so I'm the hero, right? I want to make everything right, and I want to make everything around everybody around me happy. So I had a, I had a handful of deals that were going bad, and I should have just let them go to foreclosure and worked with my profitable good deals, right? And I should have let those go to foreclosure and those investors get hurt. But I didn't want any of my investors to get hurt. And I had been involved in recessions in the past. I saw corrections in the market, maybe 10%, short periods of time, 17, 18 months. But this thing lasted forever. And as a result of that, I said, okay, let me try and fix this. So I'll try and keep the company afloat. I took money from profitable companies, moved it to non-profitable companies left paperwork, left a a paper trail saying, oh, I took it from company A to company B, and this is where this money sits. So when the market changes and things improve, we'll put the money back. Mm -hmm. The problem was I didn't disclose it to my investors. So just- Investors on the
1: profitable deals.
0: On any of the deals, the non-profitable or the profitable. Justin, if I were to come to you and said, hey, listen, what do you think about us doing this? And you would have said, yeah, let's try and keep the whole ship afloat and would have signed off on it. None of this would have happened, but I didn't do it. I tried to hide everything and tried to you know, keep the ship afloat. As a result of that, I wound up being charged on wire fraud and mail fraud charges wow. and sentenced to, to 10 years in prison, so.
1: Anything else that you think we should know about that
0: experience or time before we move on to, to the property management? Let me just give you these, these points, right? Here's what I think operators, uh, owner operators need to look at today. First, they need to look at their leverage. Make sure you're 65% to 75, 65 to 75% in every deal. Make sure you raise enough money that you got some money sitting on the side in reserves just in case something drastic happens. Stop overpaying for property. Everybody's doing it right now. Slow down. Underwrite conservatively. If those deals don't pencil, walk on them. They're not worth the calories. Make sure that you are being upfront and honest with everybody, act in, in every form of integrity in your business, and then um, make sure that you are paying attention to the red flags. I had people around me telling me they didn't trust the people that were in my corner that I thought were in my corner, and it was not a good, good situation. So um, pay attention to the red flags, watch their due diligence, make sure that you're buying smart, you summed up um probably 60 some
1: <laughs> episodes worth of of advice there that I've gotten so yeah that's uh some really great tips there man you've left me speechless i don't even know what to say but you know it's just a um something that you know we've got to disclose right disclose disclose if you're bringing on investors they need to know everything that's that's happening in in the companies cuz you know, it feels like your company it's also their company as well even if you're in charge right right
0: for sure
1: yeah Okay, let's let's transition a little lighter here and talk about some practical. You know, you were just talking to me before the show about that very important transition time of taking over a property, and it's something that I really believe heavily in, and I I agree. You know, I think that you can make some mistakes very early on that will set you back uh, before you even technically close on the property. So, give us some some guidance and advice on on that sort of transition period from getting it under contract to actually closing on it.
0: Yeah. Great question, right? I really think that you need to be aware as an operator that your job starts from the minute your LOI is accepted. From that period forward, and especially when your money goes hard, because now you've got hard money, you better make sure that that asset's performing when you take over at closing. The worst thing I think people do is they walk away from the closing table and they go, now what? (laughs) <laughs> right? Yeah. So, and, and and a new guy will do that. A new operator will do that. So uh, what I always say is stay involved, you know, and I think that there's some basic things to stay involved with. Make sure that you build a relationship with those uh, on-site, uh, with any on-site staff. If, if it's a smaller property and you don't have on-site staff, make sure that you are, you're, you're hands-on involved with the owner or the property management company that's currently managing the the property. You want to make sure that you're involved in in lease up. Listen, here I've seen this happen and I always get a kick out of this. So you, Justin, you're selling a property and you go to contract, your money gets hard, you put that money in your escrow account or your your pocket as the owner and you go, man, now I can take a little break take my foot off the gas, but mm-hmm. I can go think about this other asset over here or do something else. And you take your eye off the off, off the ball, right? So here's what happens. You put a crummier tenant in there. So you take less money for it. You give a bigger concession. I see this happen a lot. When where you should be as a new owner coming in is make sure that you're part of those new leases. Make sure that you're checking the... Um, the qualifications of that tenant and that the standards are your standards because you're going to take this over now. So if you have different tenant leasing standards than the previous owner, you bought it, probably should try and get yours put in play. Um, And,
1: and, And I will say just to interject there, that is, can be difficult. We just bought a property in October. Previous owner was doing exactly what you said. Low leasing standards, nowhere near what we wanted, but also did not care what we had to say about it right and so we probably should have put that in our contract was that we wanted some some kind of approval on those tenants and we got none of that
0: right and and it should be in your contract right yeah. so uh i would put it in the loi so that they know up front that it's it's one of those things that hey you know here here's how i think this business works it's like any contractual business every time you do something and something happens you go oh there's something else i need to add to my contract yep. <laughs> right. So now we need to build this in. So uh, that's how I built the best uh, general contracting contract. I think anybody in the, in the suburbs where I where I was had at the time, because I just kept adding to it, adding to it. But so so that's one piece. The other thing is when your takeover period, when you're going to go take it, take over a property. Um, what does that look like? What does the new operations look like? Hey, are you changing the sign? Are you rebranding? Are you, you know, are you going to do a meet and greet with your tenants? You know, make sure this stuff's in place. How about how about repairs and maintenance along the way? Um, I always wanted to know if there were major repairs that needed to be done during that transition period. And did they get done? Did they get done properly? Were there any legal or insurance issues that came up from the time I went to contract till the time? I'm getting ready to close, you know, and, and that's, that's just on the operation side stuff. Right. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely right. Your ownership, your plan has to start from, from the day that LOI gets accepted because you have to be building your CapEx plan and schedule and business plan. And, And I did a whole episode here about the business plan and how important it is and every single piece, you're exactly right. If we are going to rebrand or do the do the marketing or change management companies, who is that? What are we looking for? What are the rents we're looking for? What's our scope of work? All that has to happen while you're doing due diligence, while you're getting all the information so that, yeah, like you said, the worst thing you can do is close and then say, okay, now what? Because every day is wasted at that point and that's lost revenue opportunities and, and you're hurting your investors if you're not uh, hitting it, hitting the ground running. Um, What are some mistakes that people probably make during that transition period or while they're under contract? What do you think?
0: Uh, I think they take their eye off the ball. You know, they don't pay attention to what's going on. Um, I think when they do due diligence, they overlook um, some details, right? Uh, Here, I always talk to people about not falling in love with a deal, Right make, because as soon as we start to get emotionally involved, it's like a bit of a relationship. And when mm-hmm. the relationship goes bad, it's hard to get out of. Right. So make sure that you're paying attention to all the red flags and the due diligence. I had an analyst that worked for me that, that, you know, even if she wanted us to buy a deal, she'd spend 45 minutes trying to talk me out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That, so, so make sure you're looking at the downside of everything. Hey, if, if, if you have an eviction problem or a collections problem, what's causing the collections problem? Why is my loss to lease at 6% when I know that my standard, it should be at three? So, you know, and, and what am I going to need to do to correct that? Because if I have that plan in place prior to taking over, then when I take over, I'm already moving in the direction of of correcting it, right? It's the same thing with capex. What what do I need to do when I take over a property? How am I gonna How am I gonna make it look better? How am I gonna re-engineer it? How am I gonna make it? Uh, how, how am I gonna bring the curb appeal up? And when do we start that? What? Let's
1: then talk about property management. Um, when you built your company, were you doing third party or only self management for your own properties?
0: Yeah. So um, I that my property management company, we did our own, but I managed about another 3,500 third-party properties. Got it. Okay. Great. Well, it's kind of interesting was they were, uh, they were around where I had other properties. So owners would come to us and say, Hey, we like what you did with the curb appeal. We like what you did with the, with the property. We can see that you brought your occupancy up. Help us out. Mm-hmm. So we would take on we would take on a little bit more responsibility. So, yeah, we did do third party. But here's what else is interesting. you know, um, so when when all those businesses got unwound and I wound up, I was going getting ready to go to prison, I built another property management company because I knew that I needed to do something that would keep my wife and the kids in the house, right, mm-hmm. and keep them surviving while I was gone. And what happened? I built a third-party scattered site residential uh, management company, which is a totally different animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I don't know that I would go build that kind of a company again today. But there's a lot of money to be made in in single-family residential scattered site multi or uh, management. Sure.
1: One thing that I'm curious about from you know, I've,
0: I've talked to people and
1: operators and I've talked myself a lot about how to find a good management company, but I want to flip that around as the operator of the management company. How do you find a good owner? What is, what is a good owner operator, the kind of person that you want to manage their property?
0: Wow. That's a really good question. That's a really good question. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that, you know, the big talk today is building an avatar, right? Who's your perfect client? So if I'm going to look for a owner, I I want an owner that one is coachable. Um, Just like coaching clients that I work with, I want to make sure they're coachable. Because if we're going to have to implement something that's going to help turn a property around or scale a property, then I want an owner that's going to be willing to do that and willing to risk, right? So Hey, they need to be coachable, They need to be willing to take a little risk. They also need to be an owner willing to maybe throw a little capital at something if they need to. Yeah, but I'm sure you've looked at properties or maybe even bought some properties uh, over over the years that have been properties that the owners just have neglected them. Mm-hmm. They won't put capital into them. I think one of the one of the big things on a transition is when you when you're taking over a property, that the office staff is tired, they're exhausted, they're wore out. And why are they wore out? Well, they're wore out because the owner isn't willing to put any money into the property. The owner isn't willing to take care of any of the tenant issues. So the people in the office get beat up with with tenants, complaints, issues, non-payment of rent because they're tired. Everybody gets wore out by the owner. So the owner has to be willing to make changes. Hey, you know, I look at it personally as well as professionally, because if you're not willing to to give back and to increase profitability, you're going to stay stuck.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and as owners, and most of our listeners are owners or want to be owners, um, you know, this is something that I talk about with my property managers all the time, my regional managers, the owners of the company, like, how can, I be a good owner for you because it's a partnership. And at the end of the day, the property management company is who the tenants see. It's who the maintenance guys see. It's who the contractors see. But so so they have a lot of sway on our property, and I need to be able to back them up, take that advice, that guidance, invest where we need to invest. And so um, yeah, it's something I I always try to ask everybody is you know, as operators, I think we can all be doing better, and and none of us. Um, I hope, want to be, you know, the, the S word, slumlord, right? Where that's not how how I operate or, or most of the people I do business with operate. Um, we don't want that. We want to invest in making a place, a better place to live for our tenants so that everybody can win. And so that's um, that's one thing I'm, I would just want to be always conscious of is, is how do we make this place the best place it can be?
0: Right, right.
1: So, man, we're, we're already out of time. This has been uh, been really insightful. Um, before we go, uh, you mentioned a new book coming. So why don't you give us a little bit of a synopsis of, about that book and, and where we can find it?
0: Yeah, so um, the book that I recently released is called Exit Plan. Uh, it's your complete guide to multifamily investing and why you need an exit plan uh, before you buy. And you could go download a copy of that if you uh, if you're an ebook reader. It is at mycoreintentions.com forward slash exit plan, and you download a free copy. And um, later this year, I'll have a book out that'll come out probably in October uh, on property management called Winning Strategies for Property Management, but that'll be later this year.
1: Got it. Well, that link uh, will be on our website, multifamily.show. If anyone missed that, come on to our website, check out Mike, all of his social links, the book link, and all of that will be up there as well. Mike, before we go, question I ask everybody, uh, someone comes to you, Mike, and says, and I know you're coaching people. So, you know, Mike, I want to get into multifamily investing. What is your true multifamily tip for them?
0: What do you know about it? How much are you putting into yourself education wise, right? Because I think that to be a good multifamily operator, you need to keep educating yourself. Somebody said yesterday a very interesting comment, which was, I've been in a lot of different industries and multifamily real estate is that one industry that everybody continues to want to get better in and continues to put money into education. As a tip, I would say, hey, what are you doing for yourself on an annual basis education-wise? There's a ton of free stuff out there, but I think that there's a quality that comes when you wind up paying for education as well. Absolutely.
1: could not agree more. Mike, I appreciate you sharing your story, giving it all to us and and just laying it out there for us. So we really appreciate that. Thank you for coming on the show. If you guys want to get in touch with Mike, all of his contact information again is on our website, truemultifamily.show. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. You bet, Justin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode. Check out our website at truemultifamily.show. And if you have an amazing story to tell, share it on our Facebook community and you might just be the next guest on the show. We're also on all other social networks. Just search True Multifamily. I'm really, really proud to have this show produced by our company, On Air Brands. Check us out at onairbrands.com. We also have an incredible, unique podcasting event that we would love for you to be a part of. Check that out at podmax.co.